from Louisiana to Arizona, Virginia to Oklahoma, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, lack of a comprehensive policy agenda that offered real solutions is one of the factors behind the GOP's disappointing showing in the midterm elections. Veronica Rugi from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University is here to discuss. Congress will be back in session during December for a lame duck session with resolution of the federal budget still on its plate. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. In key battleground states, voters wanted a Republican U.S. Senate but didn't want their Senate candidate. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets analysis from Emily Eakins of the Cato Institute. And sometimes you need a disruptor, other times you need a unifier. That's the conclusion of Colin Hanna from Let Freedom Ring USA, who has this week's American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Donald Trump is getting much of the blame for the Republican Party's subpar performance in the midterm elections, but Veronik Darugi says the GOP failed to offer real solutions to the nation's problems. Veronique is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She joins us now. Veronique, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Veronique, you talked in a recent op-ed that you wrote about the fact that Donald Trump is getting a lot of blame for the recent poor performance of Republican candidates nationwide, but you focused in on Republicans and their policy agenda, which you called a mishmash. What did you mean by that? First, I meant, and I think it can be traced back to Donald Trump, honestly, because it's been it's been a recurring problem the last seven years, really. So first, they don't have really an agenda. They're not fighting anymore about policy ideas. They're stepped away, some of them, from the free market uh, orthodoxy, if you if you want. But I mean, their platform, there was no platform, right? I mean, there was like, even in 2020, it literally, they like stapled the, the 2016 platform or the elect Donald Trump platform. That was kind of their platform. They would know it was not a, a battle of ideas like it, it, it used to be. Um, this is not to take away the blame from Democrats who are no better, but it was all about personality, all about, and it was all about kind of we're better than, than the left is, and the left does the same, right? I mean, they love when Donald, when they can point to Donald Trump. So it's just not a battle of policy, but I think in big part is because to the extent that they have policy that they are willing to actually talk about, they're they're just not traditional free market Republican type. So it's anti-trade, it's super anti-immigrant. I mean, they talk about immigrants in a way that Republicans never talked about immigrants. We can talk about reforming immigration, what needs to be done, but it's always kind of talking about immigration in kind of a demeaning, dangerous, kind of scary way. They called for industrial policy. They called for cracking down on private companies and big entitlement in the form of the expanded child tax credit, lots of conservative pushing for the federal government to play a role in paid leave. It's a mess. 
Veronique, one of the issues that Democrats pull off the shelf every year, election cycle after election cycle after election cycle, and it always works, is Social Security. They try to scare folks into thinking that Republicans want to do away with Social Security. Have Republicans come up with any answer to that yet? No, not yet. I mean, and it's so disappointing because it's not hard to come up with good sound bites that say actually doing nothing is cutting benefits by 25% within probably 10 years. That not reforming Social Security right now means basically the trust fund will dry out. And when that happens, by law, doing nothing means benefits will be cut probably by 20% across the board, or everyone is going to face massive increase in, in, in taxes. So it is an easy soundbite, which is doing nothing equates benefit cuts. That's what the Democrats are calling for. I don't know why they're not doing it. I think it's just part of, they're just scared of their own shadow. They don't want to fight The other big issue in the recently concluded campaign, Veronique, was inflation, of course, which is hurting everybody, every family, every business in America. Republicans talked a lot about inflation and blaming Joe Biden for it, and rightfully so. But did they offer any solution to the problem? No, they really haven't. In fact, they kind of, there are two minds on this. On one hand, because they still have kind of very pro-market kind of approach to things, which is very pro-market stock, I mean, I should say stock market, because unfortunately being pro the stock market and being pro-business is very different than being pro-market, really, or free market. And so they, they kind of have issues with the Fed raising rates. They're unhappy about that. They say they're running us into the, the Fed is running us into the ground, into a recession. But the truth of the matter is that that's the only tool the Fed ever had. And and more moreover, until Congress starts cutting spending or soaking a lot of that money out, the Fed is going to have an even harder job clamping down on inflation with rates alone. Republicans, uh, Veronique, have narrowly taken control of the U.S. House of Representatives. So they have two years of being in control of that chamber. What should they do with that power over the next two years? They need to first stop any more spending going through. I mean, that seems very, very important. There's a debt ceiling fight that's coming up. And they need to kind of basically educate the American people about how why it is that we cannot continue going at the same rate of spending money we don't have and raising the debt and the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is more the debt ceiling doesn't have any real significance except kind of as a signal that once again we're spending so much money that that our debt is going up really, really, really quickly. They need to do a lot of education on the need for fiscal sustainability, which they haven't been doing. And I think they need to kind of rediscovered a message that they had about the power and 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 the glory of economic growth, not just as a way to increase waste wealth for everyone, but as actually the probably only real solution for a lot of the problem that that hunt us right now, like polarization, like crime, 
like the lack of tolerance. There's just like we know that economic growth and economic freedom in particular are very strongly correlated, sorry, to all of these things, improvement in all of these aspects that we want. We have been talking with Veronique Derugi, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Vero, tell us a little bit about the Mercatus Center. So Mercatus is a uh, university-based research center. We're nonpartisan. We're free market. And the website for the Mercatus Center is? Mercatus.org. Veronique Derugi of the Mercatus Center. Veronique, good to have you back with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. At the offices of the Club for Growth, Scott Parkinson keeping an eye on what needs to happen, what may happen in Congress over this lame duck session between now and January. Scott, good to have you back with us. Great to be back, Loman. We have another five, six weeks of congressional session left, Scott. What are we going to look forward to having happen or should happen over the next few weeks? The Democrats have had unified government. Since the beginning of the Biden administration, holding the House, Senate, and White House, we know the Republicans have won back the House of Representatives. And a lot of Democrats in Washington are trying to use the lame duck session to get some of these final items in their agenda jammed through Congress in the closing weeks before Republicans in the House take over power on January 3rd. And so this is what's known as a lame duck session of Congress. It's basically when you have the majority changing political parties, and you've got all these members that are either retiring or lost their election and they're on their way out, but they're going to be enacting critical laws basically uh, on their way out the door. And we need to ensure that the American people are fully educated on all the threats that basically these Democrats are hoping to jam through Congress in the closing weeks. Spending is going to be a very big part of that, Scott. The continuing resolution, it expires here, uh, what, in just a few days? It expires on December 16th, and we know that that means if we do nothing, there will be a partial shutdown of government operations. Typically during Christmas and New Year's, the federal government isn't doing a whole lot anyways. So it's used as a pressure point to basically load up everything underneath what I call a Christmas tree legislative package and deliver all these little goodies like Santa Claus to various congressional districts or lawmakers that really are on their way out. We know that the chairman and vice chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, Senators Leahy and Shelby, are retiring. So that can certainly add fuel to the fire in getting an omnibus appropriations bill signed into law in December. I think that many Republicans want to avoid doing an omnibus appropriations bill, not only because of all the anomalies that get loaded into that or the earmarks, this outrageous level of spending. They could they could tack on money for disaster relief related to the hurricanes. But if we just do another continuing resolution that goes into January or February, then Republicans will actually have real leverage in their negotiation with the Biden administration. We do have some leverage right now because it takes invoking cloture in the United States Senate to move through an appropriations bill. So that requires 60 votes. That being said, there are a lot of Senate Republicans that have gone along to get along in Washington in the lame duck session. So we need to make sure that Mitch McConnell and the the Senate Republican minority reject cloture on a spending deal. And the Democrats 
are looking at this as an opportunity also to consider a debt limit increase. The debt limit is not uh, breached yet, but it will be reached in, in early 2023. And once that happens, you'll have the Treasury invoke what are known as extraordinary measures, where they sell off various assets in order to meet their debt obligations. With revenues coming in from businesses and individuals, and really in the April timeframe, they can usually extend extraordinary measures into the early summer. But Democrats don't want to negotiate with Republicans like they did in 2011 when Republicans took back the House. And so there are rumors that a debt limit increase could be on the table for Democrats. In recent years, there has been a policy, pay-go, pay-as-you-go, where when new spending occurred, old spending had to go if there wasn't a way to pay for it. Is that still in effect or something we're likely to see take more prominence as Republicans take control of the House? Absolutely. So I want to make this crystal clear to the American people, right? Whenever we have these emergency spending bills with like the coronavirus response, basically the last section of the bill waives statutory pay-go, meaning this is an emergency. We're not going to count this toward our spending limits that we are basically constrained through in Washington, D.C. And so Democrats in Washington exceeded the levels of spending that they were authorized to spend when they passed President Biden's American Rescue Plan. A lot of people remember that as the Biden stimulus in early 2021 after he became the president. But at the end of 2021, they delayed the budgetary enforcement of their reckless spending behavior. And if Congress doesn't act by providing another waiver on the statutory PAYGO scorecard, there would be automatic cuts in spending through sequestration for Medicare and about 250 smaller non-exempt programs. It doesn't cut spending for every federal program, but there are some programs that are not exempt, and Medicare is one of them. So when you total up what's necessary on the statutory pay-go scorecard, there could be $37 billion in cuts to Medicare, along with $95 billion coming out of smaller programs. And Democrats and big spenders, Republicans in Congress may want to do another pay-go waiver, but we think it would be better if they enacted responsible fiscal cuts that targeted unnecessary federal spending. Obviously, the Medicare program is very important. We know that that program is reaching insolvency in the near term, and Congress does need to enact real reforms in order to save Medicare for seniors. It's worth reminding people, Democrats don't want Medicare. They want to abolish the Medicare system and enact single-payer health care that they're disguising as Medicare for all. So kind of going back to the, the PAYGO waiver, we need to ensure that there isn't a waiver here in whether it's an omnibus or any other must-pass piece of legislation that the lame duck enacts. And instead, this is a real opportunity to adhere to the spending levels that we have. Otherwise, you're looking at roughly $132 billion spending increase that will exacerbate our debt and deficit issue. And inflation as well. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, a few words about the club. The Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We have a 501c4 that engages in federal advocacy on behalf of over 500,000 members from all walks of life and all 50 states in America. If anybody wants to check us out, our website is clubforgrowth.org, and you can actually sign up and become a member for free. 
Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you for being here. Thank you. Post-election polling has found candidate selection cost the GOP a number of U.S. Senate seats in key battleground states. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from Emily Eakins of the Cato Institute. Historically, we've seen that midterm elections generally favor the political party that is uh, not the party that currently holds the White House. And while that that trend held this midterm, it, it didn't hold quite as strongly, it didn't show up as strongly as I think many pundits and prognosticators expected. And we're going to take a look at why that might have been today. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Emily Eakins. She is the vice president and director of polling at the Cato Institute, and she's here to talk us through some results from a new poll that Cato has uh, just published. You can see the the full results of this at Cato.org, looking at particularly what uh, voters said about Republican candidates in this year's midterm election. Emily, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. I want to start off uh, just with really like the top line here. The thing that jumped out to me is that in a lot of, of the like key states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, these these purple states that decided control of the Senate, a larger group of voters said they liked the idea of Republicans controlling the Senate, but they, they didn't necessarily like as much the particular Republicans running in their state. That's exactly right. Um, we saw this com- a, a consistent pattern across the key states where there were toss-up or really competitive Senate races, like in Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. Those are the four states that election watchers were really keeping an eye on. And in each of those states, you had more people who wanted a Republican-controlled Senate than said they actually were going to vote for their state's Republican candidate, which is really surprising. The idea being that people in general, like they they wanted the Senate to be controlled by Republicans, but they weren't necessarily uh, as enthusiastic about the people, like the the particular person on their ballot. We heard a lot during the campaign about candidate selection issues. And I think like particularly in Georgia and Pennsylvania, maybe we can just talk about those two where you had uh, pretty unorthodox Republicans, Herschel Walker in Georgia and uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. Is is that basically what this poll is bearing out, that like the candidate selection process here, the primary process, didn't go as well for Republicans as it maybe could have? I think that that's right. I think that the Republicans that actually made it through the primary process and were the Republican nominee was not necessarily the strongest candidate that the Republic, the state Republican Party could have run. So like, let's, let's go into the details. Let's look at Pennsylvania um, with Dr. Mehmet Oz. Now, he's not a bizarre person or, or candidate, if that makes any sense. It was more that it seemed like the, the voters of Pennsylvania didn't view him as an authentic Pennsylvanian. Polls found that after his, the opponent, the Democratic opponent, John Fetterman, after he had had a stroke, and people were concerned about his, you know, his health. And pollsters asked people, you know, how concerned are you about Fetterman's health? There were actually more people concerned about Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, not being an authentic Pennsylvanian than they were about John Fetterman, his health, impeding him from being able to serve in the Senate. And so that was a pretty consistent theme. I actually think Dr. Oz could be a good Republican candidate in a different state, where kind of his, you know, softer spoken style and kind of his celebrity might perhaps be, you know, more helpful to him in a different state. I don't think that he was a zany candidate, if that makes sense. He didn't say bizarre things like, 
other candidates did in other races like Georgia. A lot of people grew up just loving Herschel Walker, but then he runs for Senate and he says a lot of bizarre things that don't really necessarily like make sense. And there were allegations of abuse and misconduct I mean, all sorts of problems. It, if it weren't perhaps for his kind of celebrity of being a football star and also that Donald Trump really got behind him in the primary, that he may not have been the first choice for Georgia Republican voters, you know, trying to figure out who should be their party's nominee. But like another case, case in point that I think we should look at is Arizona. Let's compare Blake Masters to Carrie Lake the Republican running for governor, Blake Masters was running for Senate. Now, both lost their races, but Blake Masters did a lot worse than Carrie Lake did. And that fit with what we saw in the polling data. In the polling data, 49% of Arizonans said that they wanted the Republicans to control the Senate, but only 45% wanted to vote for him, Blake Masters. You actually got more people voting for Carrie Lake, who ultimately lost, than they did Blake Masters. And so time after time, the poor candidate selection really didn't pay off when it came to appealing to independent and Democratic voters in statewide races. It's like that old saying about how all happy families are happy in the same way and every unhappy family is unhappy in different ways, right? It's like the the candidate selection process was the problem for Republicans here, but it was different in every state, right? The, the reasons why they're unhappy at the end of this midterm is slightly different. I think that's a good point that like Mehmet Oz's problems are not the same as Herschel Walker's problems are not the same as Blake Masters' problems. But the overall problem here is that candidate selection, for, for whatever reason, blame Republican primary voters, blame Donald Trump, blame whoever you'd like. It's, it was it's just sort of a, a different phenomenon. There yeah. was a common thread, and it's that Donald Trump did endorse these candidates. And so that tells you something, that just because Donald Trump endorses a candidate doesn't mean that that's the right candidate for the Republicans to run if they want to win in the general election. You know, maybe Republican primary voters take his endorsement, you know, uh, very seriously. But when it comes to the general election, independent voters don't care that Donald Trump endorsed the person. If anything, maybe it might have been a negative for some voters. And so that's where I think the common thread was Donald Trump's involvement in the primaries and endorsing candidates may not have been helpful to Republicans trying to win statewide races. You can check out more on this poll at Cato.org. Emily, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. And again, that is Emily Eakins. She's vice president, director of polling at the Cato Institute. Find uh, their work, uh, excellent work, not just on polling, but on lots of public policy as well at Cato.org. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Check out our uh, coverage of the election and everything else going on around the country at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Is Donald Trump the best candidate to carry the Republican banner in 2024? Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA offers a few thoughts on this American Radio Journal Commentary. The recent announcement by former President Donald Trump that he plans to run for the presidency again in 2024 has attracted a lot of attention, but it's a mistake that even two-time supporters should recognize. Philadelphia area attorney Jim Greenfield wrote an open letter to President Trump that was published on theintel.com and reprinted in several other places in the last week or two. 
Mr. Greenfield makes such a strong case, and it so closely parallels my own thinking regarding the wisdom of another Trump candidacy, that I think it warrants extensive quotation. Dear President Trump, In mid-August, shortly after the FBI made its unannounced, unprecedented search of Mar-a-Lago, you acknowledged America's rising levels of anger and polarization, and you made an extraordinary offer. You said, quote, The temperature has to be brought down in the country. If it isn't, terrible things are going to happen. I will do whatever I can to help the country, close quote. Well, offer accepted. Here's how you can. Help the nation step back from the precipice of civil disorder. Declare you will not be a candidate for president in 2024. Now, although Mr. Greenfield's letter may have been written prior to Mr. Trump's announcement last week, it is still pertinent because Mr. Trump could still announce a decision not to run even after announcing that he would run. In fact, it might even be more impactful as it would be an act of self-reflection so out of character that it would be inherently newsworthy and more newsworthy than the widely anticipated announcement that he would run again. Mr. Greenfield goes on. I'm a conservative who voted for you in 2016 and 2020, and I regret neither vote. Had you continued in office in 2021, the U.S. and the world would be safer and in far better economic condition today because you would have continued to encourage the exploitation of our vast energy resources, completed your efforts to stem both unfettered immigration and the importation of deadly fentanyl across our southern border, ensured that law enforcement had the resources it needs to control rising crime, and tried to slow the spread of racially divisive and sexually inappropriate materials in our schools. But these initiatives can and should proceed without you. If you run again, the electorate's attention will be diverted from winning issues which beg for exposition. Justice Department jackals will continue to harass and likely indict you. You will be playing defense when your team is poised to take the ball and drive down the field. None of the other leading Republican contenders will have to contend with such distractions. You cannot secure personal vindication in 2024. Your selfless decision to withdraw from the 2024 race would be statesmanlike, truly a historic America First moment. I concur, and I would like to tie up that last point with a nice Christmas bow by posing just one question to the listeners of American Radio Journal. Do you think a second term for Donald Trump would be more focused on proposing and executing a well-thought-out set of policies for the future, or on relitigating the past, especially the 2020 election itself? Well, National Review's lead opinion piece online offers this memorable two-letter headline, No. Here's its central argument. A lesson of the midterms was that association with Trump and stop the steal were liabilities, and no one is more associated with both of those things than Donald Trump himself. Democrats helped choose MAGA candidates that were eminently defeatable in GOP primaries, and nominating Trump, whom the Democrats are pining to run against again in 2024, would replicate this experience on a much larger scale. 
There are times in history when a disruptor is needed and times when a principled healer is necessary. We are at the latter time. Donald Trump did much good during his first term, but we need a new kind of leader in 2024. Let's stop listening to Donald Trump and start listening to people like Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Ron DeSantis, and others with our ears attuned to hearing the sounds of leadership. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WGRG-FM in Auburn, Washington, WGNZ-AM and FM in Dayton, Ohio, along with KZOY-AM in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.